For over a decade, I shopped and worked at my local comic shop. One of the best parts about hanging out there was comparing notes on what I was reading with folks who shared my passion for comics. My comic shop is gone now, but we can still hold on to the magic of that in-store discussion. This is My Comic Shop Book Club. Welcome to My Comic Shop Book Club. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the first half of the Grant Morrison new X-Men run is my buddy from our old comic shop, Mike San Gregorio. Hi, thank you for having me. Listen, there's no one else I would even consider for this. Before we get into the run itself, and let me just lay this out for our audience here. For this episode, we're going to be covering uh, new X-Men numbers uh, 114 through 134, along with the 2001 annual, uh, which is really just about the halfway point in the Grant Morrison new X-Men run. Uh, so beginning with E is for Extinction and ending right before Riot at Xavier's. And then in the next episode, in two weeks, uh, we'll cover the second half of the run. This is the first time I've done this on this podcast, splitting up a run like this. But I figure if if we're ever going to do a two-parter, uh, a Grant Morrison run makes a lot of sense. And as I was saying, you were the only person I would consider for this. You are the biggest uh, Grant Morrison fan. I know I know you, you've enjoyed his work. You, you think about it. You've analyzed it. And, uh, and I'm just so happy to have you along for this ride. Yeah, no, I, I, this is one of my favorite runs of all time. I've read it multiple times and I was going to reread it anyway, just because I felt like it. And then you mentioned that and I'm like, well, I, uh, I am on board. Uh, I did want to ask one thing though. Are we, where are we on spoilers? Can we talk about things that'll happen later on or would you rather keep that separate or how do you, how do you, how do you feel about that? You know, that's a good, we did not talk about this beforehand. It's a great question. I was thinking about it. I've. You know, there are the, significant spoilers in this run. So yeah, and you know, I'm going in, in previous episodes. We have spoiled, and I've given a spoiler warning, and I'll, I'll issue one here too. So I think this. I think spoilers are fair game. I, you know, I could be wrong on this, and if I am, you know, listeners, viewers, let me know because I'm just going based on the sense that I have, and I could be wrong. So please let me know otherwise. But I've I've gotten the sense that people who are listening or watching uh, these book club podcasts, the sense I get is that. They are checking it out because they've already read the run and they want to hear a discussion about it. Or maybe they're, you know, they're curious about it. Maybe this is the way that they're going to experience the run. Maybe they're never going to sit down and read, you know, Grant Morrison's 40 issues on New X-Men, but they're kind of curious about it and they want to hear talk about it. Um, and again, I could be wrong, but I would assume if someone really hasn't read it and wants to read it and cares about spoilers, they probably won't listen to this first and that's fine. So spoilers are fair game. So listener, viewer, you know, <laughs> please be warned. Uh, but I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, I, as far as spoilers, I, I think there's, I know what's coming in the second half and I think that's probably what you're alluding to. And I, and I think it, it will make the, this conversation more interesting if we address it rather than, you know, sort of try to try to dance around it. Now, right before we started, you educated me on a recent uh, development with, with Grant Morrison and how he identifies himself. Would you mind just explaining? Yes. So uh, relatively recently, I'm not sure of the exact chronology, but Grant Morrison, the author, changed Grant Morrison's pronouns and now refers to themselves as a they. So though I'm sure you and I will do our you know, most conscious effort to, to keep that in mind. If we do use he, it is not on purpose. It is accidental. And, uh, you know, we, we completely respect the decisions of the author. 
Yeah, and I appreciate you giving me the heads up. I I was ignorant of this, and uh, again, like you said, I, I will do my best to uh, address Grant Morrison as, as or refer to Grant Morrison as they, but I suspect in the hour plus that we're going to be talking, I might slip, and if I do, uh, again, it, it's not intentional, but I, I appreciate it. Yeah, same here. That. It is absolutely not intentional. Uh, it just, it's just something I'm getting used to, so yeah, please, uh, you know, a little bit of leeway would be great. <laughs> so before we talk about their run, right? I want to talk a little bit about Grant Morrison and I want to talk a little bit about X-Men. You and I have, I don't know how, how exciting it is, but we have a little bit of a Grant Morrison story. I'll give the quick setup, but then I'm going to, I'm going to toss it over to you. You and I attended San Diego Comic-Con together 2016. We went as reporters for Bleeding Cool and we've talked about that on a, on a different podcast, but uh, we did that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we roomed together. I've gone on record as saying, you, I mean, you, an impeccable uh, roommate. You couldn't ask for anyone better. And one evening after the convention let out, we were leaving the convention center, about to venture out into the streets surrounding the, the convention center and grab some dinner and stuff like that. And, you know, a whole crowd of people leaving the center. And we saw... Yeah, we, we saw Graham Morrison uh, and their entourage as they were leaving the building. And, you know, I, I maintain to this day that we just happened to be going in the same direction. But there is a hundred plus thousand people who leave that building when that show is over. And we we stuck with them for far longer than I thought we were going to. And it's it's funny because the year before that I had gone, I, I had actually had opportunity very quickly to meet them. I, I covered one of the panels that they were doing and uh, I got a great picture and I had a great, you know, one of those quick Comic-Con interactions. Um, so it wasn't like I had never met them before, but yeah, that night it was like, it was like, oh man, I, I'm, I'm half hoping they're going to turn around and be like, would you guys like to join us for a drink? But uh, thankfully we, we eventually broke up and, and you and I had a very nice night, but yeah, it was uh, only a Comic-Con. Yeah. I mean, in my recollection, I feel like, I mean, I would describe it as, as a light stalking because I, I know as you're, as you're painting this picture, I know you're, you're describing it as like, oh, we happen to be walking in the same direction. <laughs> I mean, look, initially, yes, initially we were, but I, my recollection is that once you recognized Grant, that there was a conscious effort on your part to continue walking <laughs> in the same direction. The thing that always made me laugh was that because again, this is the thing that stuck out to me where I guess in my mind, I was like, because, you know, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm game, right? For And if you had said, like, I want to try to get a selfie, I want to try to get an autograph, I want to ask him a question, I, all right. But you, <laughs> you didn't vocalize any of that. And now my question was just like, what's the plan here? <laughs> I, I, I had I no plan. I, believe was. me, I was, I was just, I was just going. I just, my, my. Whenever I go to Comic-Con, especially San Diego, New York, a little less so, but when I go to San Diego, it's just, it's just roll with it. I, I just want to see what happens. You never know. I, I guess maybe in the back of my mind, I was hoping that they were going to go to a restaurant that we could go to. Maybe we could buy them a drink, something like that. Um, maybe that was what I was going. But I have to be honest with you, at that point, it was probably pretty much just exhaustion. Because for anyone who's ever been, it's whoever, anyone who's never been to San Diego, it is pretty much just a marathon that you happen to have all within one building. And especially if you're covering it for, for Bleeding Cool. I mean, we, we were running around you know, from sunup to sundown doing, doing stuff for articles. So I, I was probably exhausted. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, I've never met, I've never met Grant Morrison. Uh, I am an admirer of, of their work. 
not not to the extent that you are. Although you know, in recent years, I've definitely come to appreciate Morrison more. And you know, it's funny because there's the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group, which everyone listening or watching, you're welcome to join on our Facebook group. And just I think it was last night, right in advance of our recording, I posted the image of Morrison's new X Men. And uh, it pretty instantly got got some feedback. There were a few who were like on, like totally there for it. Like, I love this run. It's my favorite run. Then there were others who were a lot colder on it. And one thing that came up a couple of times, there, were, there was one person who said, like, I just don't, I don't get Morrison um, and finds Morrison to be a bit too cerebral at times. And there were a couple of other sentiments that were along those lines. And, you know, in the I think for myself, I, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, he's known for, for big ideas and being kind of a little, you know, a little out there. I've, and I know you've read like everything he's done, including the Vertigo stuff, which I know that really, you know, that, that's really out there. You know, I found in terms of his superhero work or their superhero work, rather, pardon me, that, uh, you know, those crazy ideas filtered through a superhero lens tend to work pretty well for me. I find that those those are usually a nice balance. I'll also say this, and I want to get your your take. I found this run to be far more accessible than I expected going in as someone who ha- has read shockingly little X-Men. I mean, this is one of, I don't know, a handful of, of X-Men runs I've read. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I mean, I'm going into this, you know, knowing that it's Morrison without their ideas, knowing that it's, X-Men known for often having convoluted continuity and a lot of stuff going on. And I found it surprisingly uh, accessible. So, you know, I don't know if that's something you can really speak to because I know you're, you're into both Morrison and X-Men coming into the new X-Men run. But for myself, I have to say, like, I really, at least in this first half, I found it to be quite, quite approachable material. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me because my understanding is that before writing the book, Graham Morrison was not a huge X-Men fan. Uh, that's one of the reasons the book feels so accessible because they were feeling their way as they go. And the best example of that is the introduction of Emma Frost, the White Queen is a main character. Up until that point, she had been in the ancillary stories, she'd been an antagonist, and it's this run that solidifies her as a premier X-Man, actually headmistress of the school um, whenever one of the main characters isn't around, which is consistent with her character. But uh, I, I feel like this story at the time didn't land the right way because it was so different from what had come before. It's very different from Chris Claremont. And I, I, you know, without getting too far into it, there, there are not two people who work in the same industry who could be more different than Grant Morrison and Chris Claremont, regardless of the fact that I love both of their work very, very much. Um, but Grant wanted to tell a completely different story that was nonetheless set in that world. And I think accessibility was a big thing for it because it's like they knew these characters were going to be in movies. They knew people were going to come to this run having never read all the nonsense that I still have in long boxes. And, you know, you want to be able to give this to someone and be able to say, well, just read this. And if you like this, I'll give you more, but this is it. This is the Watchmen of X-Men art notwithstanding. So I do, I do feel it's incredibly accessible. And I think that was on purpose. Yeah, that all makes sense. And that was really, you know, I really went into this looking at, really trying to look at it in a vacuum because, again, I didn't have the body of material that came before or after uh, for the most part. I've, you know, I, I did read the Astonishing X-Men run, which I know in a lot of ways is very much like a spiritual successor to this. Yeah, I would Wr- say so. Written by uh, the butcherer of Zack Snyder's Justice League. But anyway, 
So <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. But, uh, you know, but so I really came in looking at this in a vacuum and really just saying, okay, this like a novel, right? Like I don't know what came before. I know stuff gets retconned after I read about it, but I was really just looking at this in and of itself. Um, but I, you know, I was, I was reflecting and doing some math and going through the Marvel unlimited app. And I was trying to place this in my, in my comic book history. And I, at that point, so this came out in 2001. I mean, all through the 90s, I was only reading DC and really pretty much just the Superman books. And then slowly, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, expanding. Um, but I, the only X-Men I had read prior to this and just prior was the beginning of Ultimate X-Men, the Mark Miller run, the first couple of, that I had, I had read. And that certainly was very, that was a great entry point. It introduced me to all of the characters. It's funny because, you know, you and I are both, you know, came of age in, in the 90s and I know you know, for a lot of people in our age group, the 90s uh, Spider-Man and X-Men cartoons were huge. For me, I was there for that Spider-Man cartoon, like 100%. But I just missed the boat on X-Men. So that was, so that was one air, one thing that you might have expected to grab me and it didn't. So, you know, really it was the, the movie. I mean, the movies, but especially that first movie. Uh, and then Ultimate X-Men and then New X-Men. Um, that was really, by the time I started reading this, that was kind of all that I had. And, you know, I was trying to remember, I, I read, I don't know, maybe the first dozen or so issues as they came out and then of, of Morrison's run. Mm-hmm. And then just like other things that I've mentioned on this podcast, it, it was, you know, I continued getting the trades and I was like, all right, I'll catch up. I'll catch up. And I never did all these years later. So it was really a treat to reread those early issues that I read 20 years ago, but then to go beyond that. And I still have the second half that I haven't read yet. So, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun though, so far. How did you, how did you enjoy your reread? I, I enjoyed it a great deal. I, I've read this, this arc many times, but before we get to that, I do want to share an alternate reality story. So you may notice the shirt I'm wearing is, Weapon Plus, which is referenced in the story, and it actually says at the bottom, uh, Steve Rogers, Cap. Um, This shirt is the very last thing I bought at our dearly departed alternate realities. So I saw that this was solicited, and I asked Steve Odo um, to buy it for me, but unfortunately by the time it finally shipped, uh, the store had closed its doors for the last time, and I had to go to AR2 to pick it up. But this is a, a shirt I love very much. I've had it since then, and uh, and every time I wear it, I think to myself, you know, uh, uh, brings me back, brings me back to sitting on Central Avenue all, all weekend. So I was very, very happy that this lined up nicely, because as soon as I put this on today, I, I reflected back being in that store with you guys. Uh, it's very nice. And, and, you know, it's, it's perfectly appropriate for a show called my comic shop book club. You know, we, that's, that's where we met and, and became friends. And, uh, no, that's really nice. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you shared that. Um, and, you know, we'll take a commercial break and then we'll get, we'll get into this. I, the last thing I just want to touch on is, uh, just big picture. Uh, I really, I really did enjoy, and I took my time with the first half of this run and I, I purposely did not read ahead. Um, because I, I want it to be fresh when we do the second recording in two weeks. <laughs> that was, that was the main reason, but also, uh, I was really just taking my time with this, especially knowing that Morrison can be kind of out there and there's a lot of stuff going on. Like, I just really wanted to really savor it and take my time with it. Uh, like I said, I, overall, I found it, uh, very accessible, very approachable. I, I mean, I enjoyed it a great deal. The biggest roadblock I had, and I know we'll get into this more, you know, once, once we really start going through the run, but, uh, the art, you know, in, in the first 20 issues that we read, you know, Frank Quitely, for all intents and purposes, was the quote-unquote regular penciler. 
Uh, and then I, I guess Van Skyver was like officially his initial fill-in artist and did a few issues. Um, and we also had a bunch of issues, often random issues, by an artist named Igor Cordy. Now, this is going to test the bounds of my diplomacy because for the most part, you know, look, it's like when we talk about these things, I never... I never want to dump on a creator because I know it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to make anything creative. Right. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I might disagree with a choice that a writer makes or an artist makes. And that's fine. And that that's that gives you you know material to talk about. And I think that's fair game. Um, but I never, you know, I never want to come out and be like, oh, that was just crap. Right. Because I, I feel that that's that's reductive and that's unfair. But the the that art was rough. That was that was rough. It 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 and I've not read anything else that that artist has done. So I don't know if that was representative of the best of his ability or if it was rushed or what, but it, it looked rushed, but more than anything else, it just, there was such a dissonance between Cordy's art and quietly and, and the other artists who did that first, you know, that first half of the run. And that was the biggest roadblock to my enjoyment of the first half of this run. And it, it breaks my heart. Cause it's like, and, and, you know, I, you know, quietly is not, not known for his speed. So I don't know that there was, <laughs> unless he had, you know, a vast amount of lead time. I don't know that there was any scenario where we would have gotten him to do, you know, all 20 issues. But it, it's, a, it's a shame because I think the story, the run does suffer from the changes in artists and, and from that art in particular. I, I agree. Uh, artistically, it is incredibly inconsistent, and that's very unfortunate. Not that you don't get a smattering of amazing artists, but to use All-Star Superman or We Three or Flex Mentallo as an example, if you give Frank quietly enough time, you get something that's going to stay in print for, the, for as long as this industry exists. And while the first three issues are amazing, yeah, the fact that you have to jump around artistically, sometimes in the middle of runs, it's just, you know, part of me wishes they had just sat Morrison down and been like, how much time do you need to produce the best work? But unfortunately, this was not its own bottle series. This was in the main book. This was X-Men. This was, you know, X-Men in 2001 is, is probably the premier book. I mean, this was long before the MCU, long before the Avengers, long before even the Disney purchase. Like they probably needed new X-Men on the stands every month. And I don't know that Grant Morrison had the pull or was even offered the chance to do something like they would later do with All-Star Superman, which, you know, I'm sure if you polled a dozen people, most of them would say that's their favorite Superman story. So it is unfortunate, but at the same time, the art, the different artists lend itself to different work. Like I personally love Lenial Yu's style in the annual. There's a couple of issues by Phil Jimenez later on and all of that stuff is beautiful. But yeah, at the same time, if quietly had done the entire run, I mean, it would, it would probably be much more celebrated than that. It is pretty much on the 20 year anniversary, uh, which it is right now. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that, that <laughs> frustrated me was, you know, there was, I, there was that one three part arc that, Cordy did from start to finish uh, and that was fine and it's like okay this is his arc again I didn't love it but uh, you know fine but it was the again like those random those random Cordy issues when clear you know clearly they needed you know they needed to get the book out and he stepped in um, but that took me out of it more than anything like when I was really in a groove you know reading the stories and I was like oh man and uh, yeah but in any event it, it is what it is there's still a lot of great art to be had in this run and, and a great story before we do our 30 second commercial break let me just ask you because I know you said this is one of your favorite Morrison runs 
if you can, I mean, like, where does it, it, I don't know if you have a ranking in your head of them, but like, where does this fall for you? You know, we talk about his Batman run, JLA, the Vertigo stuff, All-Star Superman. Like, where does this fall within that, that body of work? Yeah, you're talking about just work by Grant Morrison? Yeah. Oh, this is one of my favorites because I love the X-Men. I mean, like, like you said before, just to give some quick background, uh, my two favorite franchises in comics are Spider-Man and X-Men. Like, it's just, full stop at that stuff. Um, so I, I love the X-Men regardless of anything else. Um, so the fact that a creator I very much like came on, took them to the next level. And for the most part, it's been celebrated ever since then. I mean, I've, I've reread these issues so many times. It's, it's like listening to a great song at this point. Like I'm barely paying attention to what's coming because I, I know it so well, but yeah, I would say, you know, the only problem is, is that art. Like the only stuff I would put above this is probably like Flex Mentello because that's entirely by Frank Wiley. Um, a couple of the JLA parts again, where um, like Earth Two again <laughs> by Frank Wiley. Like it's a broken record, but when the two of them get together, it truly is some great stuff. Um, supposedly, Graham Morrison wrote the end of Superman Red Sun, which was otherwise by Mark Miller. That is my favorite Superman story of all time. So whatever they should be credited for that. But yeah, I, I would say New X Men is one of my favorite comics of all time uh, by by Morrison. Otherwise, just I don't really have a lot of complaints about it. It's one of the things that I hold as the standard bearer for what I like about this. I've recommended it to everyone. I've defended it online, at cons, to people, and it's always the same thing. When I think about this run, I go back to a quote that Stanley supposedly said in an interview, which was, um, if he had stayed writing the original Marvel characters for longer than he did, and I don't know if this is true or not, they would be unrecognizable because him and Kirby and Ditko, they would have tore them apart and they would have put them back together. And I feel like when Morrison was given the X-Men, they did not grow up with that love for them. They didn't feel as reverent to them as they did for Superman or Batman or one of the other characters. And they said, well, how far can I push this? How far can I take leather clad superheroes? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of parallels with the Invisibles, which he was doing over at Vertigo at the time. But he, he doesn't play fair. He pushes the concept to the extreme. And, and when he leaves the book, it is an entirely different book from when he started. And I appreciate that because I think, for the most part, I like it more afterwards. So I don't know if I'm in the minority for that, but I've read everything. So I can usually argue with someone for a good hour or two. Yeah, right on. All right, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we will get into this run. We'll be right back. Movie lovers should check out this family of film festivals. The Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City, the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park, and the Point Lookout Film Festival on Long Island. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the podcasts hosted by the festival's organizer, C.J. Cullen. You can find the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast as well as the Cullen on Film podcast via a shared universe network. All right, and we are back. So, man, it's like, where to start? Well, I guess we start with E is for Extinction, but uh, can you just lay out for our audience, maybe they need a refresher, or maybe they are new to this run, as we, as we had discussed before. Um, what are, and again, we'll, we'll get into these more specifically, but can you just like outline, just like lay out, list, um, the major plot points and ideas that we're working with in this first half of Morrison's run? Sure. I would say the, the major things were, you know, this is 
this is fundamentally a coming out story. Like up until this point, the the X-Men reside at Xavier Institute, 45 minutes from where you and I are sitting right now. And, um, you know, they are protecting a world that hates and fears them. That's That's been their thing since, since uh, Kirby and, and Stan sat down and drew this stuff. Um, the difference here is that Morrison says, well, why? Why are you just... Uh, being so insular. Let's bring the whole world into this. Let's bring them, you know, bring them off the bench, as the Joker says in The Dark Knight. Um, so I, I would say that the, the fundamental plot points of the first half of this arc are about making it not about just the X-Men, the five or seven people that were following any series of stories, we're making it about the whole mutant community. Um, major things that are introduced very casually are Mutant Town, which is the Chinatown or Little Italy-esque part of Manhattan, uh, which is in real life Alphabet City, where mutants live, dwell, and work, which was a very casual thing that was introduced, but one of the things that I really liked, because being from New York, as you and I are, that's definitely something that would happen in real life. Um, other things, too, is this is the first run, unless I'm missing something, where there were students at the school that weren't just X-Men or weren't just New Mutants or weren't just named characters. Um, you know, it was in the movies. Uh, the first movie, I think, came out in 99, 2000. You certainly saw unnamed students there. And like I said, this book is 20 years old. And for the most part, there have been students at the school since then, which I love because it's a, it's, it's a nearly infinite source of new characters, new mutations, new side stories. And it really expanded the world outside of just, hey, we're going to see what Wolverine does this week. And again, I love Wolverine. But he's got like 17 other books. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that Graham Morrison made the, the characters really wrestle with whether or not they were going to kill. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the things that they really discuss in the first, certainly in the first 10 issues or so, is all the characters talk about, well, we have to be better than everyone else. Does that mean we take you know, lethal measures. Do we kill Cassandra Nova? Do we kill these other people? Or do we try to abide by the human laws, which offer us no protection? Uh, and that's something they really wrestle with, which not to say that they hadn't before, but now it, it seems to be explicit and seems to reoccur in everything they do, um, which I really liked because, you know, the fundamental conflict in the X-Men is really do we stay as outsiders or do we try to integrate ourselves? I mean, that, that is the story. All the stories fall in there somewhere. And sometimes it's more difficult than others, but Morrison said, well, what's going to happen when you actually do integrate? What is the world of tomorrow going to look like? And I, I think they did a, a, a stellar job at kind of showing you that. Now it's unfortunate that when you get to the end of the Morrison run, if you've never read X-Men comics before, none of this sticks around <laughs> pretty much at all, uh, which is unfortunate. But for the most part, I would say it's about expanding the world they live in and figuring out how comfortable they're going to be with doing terrible things to people who do terrible things to them, you know? Yeah, and he also plays around with the idea of the secondary mutation. Uh, and, I mean, you particularly see that in the case of, of Beast, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I echo all of that, and it that all resonated with me. I, I definitely appreciated, and again, even not having... Wait, Anthony, before yeah, yeah. we get off the secondary mutation, do, yeah. do, you, do you know what that was about? Do you know why that comes out of nowhere? So no. I, I read something. I Again, I don't know if this is true. So for those who don't know, the, the comics internet back in 2001 was the Wild West. I, I don't know if any of this stuff is true, if I'm remembering it correctly. But I read something that said that the reason secondary mutation was introduced was because Graham Morrison wanted to use Colossus um, on the team. And he was told at the time, no, that character just 
died in a very, you know, in a story we, we highly publicized. It would be disingenuous to bring them back immediately. So he said, okay, who else do you have? And, you know, they sent him the list of, of well, here are all the X-Men related characters. And he said, well, I'm going to use Emma. And they're like, well, Emma's just a telepath. And it's like, no, no, we're going to make her living diamond. We're going to make her a real white queen. And they just did that. And then in the storyline, they have this whole thing about secondary mutation. And then mm-hmm. they apply that to everyone else. They're like, well, why does Beast look like that? Oh, he's going through secondary mutation. I'm pretty sure in real life, Quietly just decided to draw him like that, which is fine. I mean, I, I love Frank Quietly's artwork. And they use it again with Quentin Quire and everyone else. And again, it's something I'm all for because I like seeing the characters change and evolve. And most of those changes have stuck around. But I, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was just like an it was just like an out, you know, if you think about it that way. Gotcha. No, I appreciate the context that that uh, that does that does color it a little differently. It's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciated the building out of the world, the introduction of all of those non X-Men students you mentioned um, and a lot of them. And I know I, I again, the arc that we'll cover at the beginning of the next episode is right at Xavier's. And I think they they have a lot to do in that. Uh, but even in, in these issues, you know, they definitely have their part to play. And and yeah, it was cool to see that built out. I liked the at least initial focus on a pretty concentrated small scale lineup of the team, especially as a new reader, you know, dealing primarily with Scott, Gene, Logan, Beast, Emma. Am I forgetting anybody? I mean, like the right, that's the uh, Charles, I would say. And Charles. Char- yeah. Um, but that was definitely, uh, that definitely helped, uh, you know, kind of pull me in dealing with that, that smaller group. And I agree. I mean, at least in this first half, I mean, Wolverine is used effectively, but sparingly. I mean, he really doesn't dominate. And, and I think that's great because like you said, he has plenty of other appearances, uh, all the time. So it's great to, you know, have other characters, you know, have, have a moment like that. Uh, and then we also have the beginning in this first half of the run of the psychic affair between, uh, Scott and Emma, which very interesting. I mean, I definitely, because I do remember reading at least the beginning of that when I was a kid, and now as a married adult, I definitely look at it a little, a little differently. <laughs> I I think that's important. I, I think that's an important story because I I think the way Cyclops was portrayed in the in the television show in the cartoon, you know, he he got a short stick. He he was portrayed. You know, they tried to make him Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles. He's he's noble and he's the leader and he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. But the result is he's he's very boring and he's very uninteresting. And that's not the way he was in the original Chris Claremont comics, which, as far as I'm concerned, are, are the Old Testament here. Um, but I, what I lo- one of the things I like is that Morrison immediately, you know, he did the classic Stan Lee thing where it's like everyone's going to have a fault. And yes, yeah, Scott can't see everything's red or yellow or tinted, however you want. But he's also terrified of his wife who is the most powerful superhero that's ever existed and uh he's you know he's he's tempted by emma who unlike gene is very much into the school as a place you know very famously scott is the first x-men in the comics in the movies i guess it's mystique but in the comics he's the first x-men he doesn't have anywhere else to go you know his parents he thinks are dead uh the orphanage was not good to him he was manipulated as, as a teen, the, the Institute is his home and he loves it and he'll give anything that uh, he has to, to further the dream. Emma feels that way too, because Emma, when she was in the Hellfire Club, she had her own team of young students and unfortunately they, they were killed, but she is a teacher at heart. Jean is not. Jean is more free-spirited. She's more dangerous. Everyone's a little bit afraid of her. So I actually love the idea that, again, Emma being relatively new to the team, 
would have an instant connection and give him a little bit to play with. You, you don't really notice that Wolverine doesn't have anything to do because suddenly all the other characters are much more interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I agree totally with that. Um, so, you know, as far as E is for Extinction, you know, I don't think you could have asked for a more engaging and effective start to this run. To be honest, I mean, within the first half, within the 20 issues that we're talking about, and that's not to say that it was all downhill from there, but that that was my favorite arc of of the ones that we read. Um, what what was your take? Yeah, I I love E for Extinction because it is uh, one of those things that you can't you can't look away from. I mean, this was before September 11th, but right before September 11th, and to see Sentinels mowing down the relatively new mutant nation of Genosha is is brutal, and and it, no one is spared, and it's really this like caustic thing, and you're like, well where do they go from here? And to see that turn itself around and say, well, okay, wait a second, there were 16 million mutants on that island, but there's a lot more in the rest of the world. Let's see what they're doing and let's make sure that this doesn't happen again. So it was a great mission statement. The um, the thing that jumps out at me for E for Extinction uh, is them very casually saying, oh, by the way, the human race is going to die in like five generations, which I remember was big in the solicitation at the time, I guess because they didn't want to give away the Genosha reveal, but like, I don't know that that's ever dealt with or really acknowledged in a lot of ways. So I was always more interested in that. Like, wait, where, where, where are we going with that? Um, but yeah, I, I, it was one of those things where it's like, I can't look away from it. I want to know more. Um, and, oh, if you're, if you're taking Magneto off the board that early in the game, you're, you're clearly setting something up. So. Yeah. The, the potential uh, impending extinction of the human race that grabbed me too. And I, I, uh, I don't, I think it's only refer. I want to say it's referenced like once more in passing in this first half of the run. And yeah, yeah. it is the sort of thing where it's like, but I like, there's so much going on that, you know, that that becomes a footnote, but you know, you do have that in the back of your mind. And, and that's definitely, you know, another factor at play as you're seeing all of this play out. It's so funny because, you know, at the end of, of that first three-issue arc, uh, Professor Xavier, and then, of course, later we'll find out that it was Cassandra Nova, you know, uh, uh, in his body. But at the end of that arc, Xavier, you know, outs himself and his school to the world. Now, again, as an ignorant non-X-Men fan, you know, I didn't even I didn't even realize that they were unknown at that point. So I was, I was like, oh, like, that's really interesting. And then that's a huge jumping off point. And I thought of you and because, you know, we've talked about the the Morrison Batman run, uh, you know, on another podcast. Morrison really likes the idea of the global uh, superhero corporation because <laughs> I'm reading this, and, uh, you know, once uh, once Xavier comes back. Right. And he sets up the X corporation around the world. It's like it's like Batman Inc. So without getting too far into the weeds here, because I don't want people turning the video off. Um, so Morrison's most well-known work is The Invisibles. And it's creator-owned and it's vertigo and it's life-changing and, and all the cult stuff you've heard people say before. But supposedly that when they were done writing it, they said, you know, um, there's a way to look at the, the centers of power in the modern world and want to bring it all down. Uh, and usually that's giant corporations. And Morrison said that when they got to the end of the invisibles, they said they understood the other side a little bit more. And basically they said, well, why don't we, the revolutionaries, the counterculture 
use these tools because they've been so effective. So you see in X-Men, the very first thing Professor X does uh, when he gets his mind back is he begins the X-Corporation. And there are numerous references to how much money he actually has because he self-finances the X-Men. You know, Emma Frost is a millionaire. The Worthingtons are millionaires. The Sunspot, Monet. Like, there's a lot of money flowing around the X-Men, and I like the codification of that. Also, it allows, you know, you were talking about how you didn't know uh, many of the ancillary characters. The X Corporation is a great way to just bring in the rest of the characters. Like there, there, there are characters there that even I had to look up. Like the the character of Risk or Risque or however you pronounce her name. She was only in a few issues, like right before the book came on, and then Morrison murders her and moves on. And and I love that because you get to play with this very rich universe. Um, but then, yeah, in Batman Incorporated, he, to, he does the same thing. He says, "Wait a second, Bruce Wayne is you know one of, if not the wealthiest person in this fictional planet. Why?" Is he not doing more and of course you know that story ends in a tragedy as well but it's it's this idea of like why can't we use the tools of our so-called oppressors to fix things you know why does it always just have to be roxon and luther corp like why can't we have them too maybe we can make the world a better place yeah i mean it's it's a very interesting angle uh that you know that's explored here um and yeah you know going back to what i was saying earlier about finding this accessible despite Morrison's out there ideas and despite, you know, being introduced to characters I had no familiarity with. Uh, I agree. I think that the, the, the global corporation was a nice way to kind of, you know, pull characters in. And for ones I wasn't familiar with, I felt like I had enough, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't take me out of it. The other thing too is, uh, as I thought of this specific, I have a specific example, um, in with Phantom X, right? Is that how we, we say it? Right. So uh, in that arc, right, Phantom X talks about being uh, being put in liquid time, right, by by the Weapon Plus program. Now, in the past, right, as a Morrison reader, that might have that might have stopped me in my tracks. I might have been like, "Wait, what is that?" I, you know, I try to wrap my head around it. I've gotten to the point with Morrison, and this has helped a lot, whether it's the Batman run or this or anything else, where. I've stopped feeling like I need to wrap my head around every single one of his ideas. Obviously, and, and you know, and that this has taken some time to really be able to pinpoint, okay, like what is actually important here for the character and for the story versus what is Morrison just doing for, for fun, right? And so I came to the liquid time thing. And like in the past, again, that might have, I might have been like, oh, what is he talking about? Now I was just like, all right, liquid time, sure. <laughs> you know, let's just go for it. So that, that, that helped a lot. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I mean, listen, when I read this thing originally, I hadn't read any any of their other work. I didn't know what the heck was going on. Uh, I was very confused. The difference with this run and the runs that came before it and some of the runs that came after it is I kept going back to it because I couldn't stop thinking about it. You, you know, I forget who said it, but the, the opposite of, of, of loving something isn't hating it it's being apathetic about it and you can't be apathetic about this run like people either love it or they hate it or maybe they don't even understand it but you certainly form an opinion about it and the the liquid time and the other things that are just kind of thrown in there i feel like that is a quick shorthand to kind of explain how new concepts and characters can work with the existing mythology because it would have been very easy for a character and I'm not picking on him I love Chris Claremont but if this had been a Chris Claremont book the introduction of Weapon Plus would have taken eight issues and a hundred characters and it would have been a very complicated reveal Morrison drops it on you while X Corp Paris is X Corp rather Paris is fighting in the channel and all this other stuff and they just move on because they want you to believe 
that, hey, super sentinels are being created by the military industrial complex. You're going to have to deal with that. And they move on to the next thing, which I like because you can go back and you can reread it and you can kind of play around with that in your head. But you don't have to get bogged down every time you read it. It's liquid time. Great. He's an adult, even though we've never met him before. Fantastic. We're going to move on to the next thing. A hundred percent. Yeah, that really... Again, that really helped a lot. And, you know, for anyone who, again, like those people in our Facebook group who, who talked about, you know, finding some of the Morris and stuff like so out there, I, that really does help. I'll also say this, and, I, you know, I've said this on a lot of the recent podcasts I've been doing where I'm like, you know, I'm not political, blah, blah, blah. And then I say something political. I'll just say this where, you know, because I was really thinking about this. You know, as a kid reading the beginning of this run and, you know, seeing the protesters outside the mansion right? Calling for the blood of the mutants. I, and it's, again, we're 20 years ago, but I feel like my reaction probably would have been, you know, not so naive as to think like, oh, you know, prejudice doesn't exist, but I probably as a kid felt like, well, no, things have improved so much. Like, I don't know if I, I fully buy that that would be the response. Now, as an adult and having seen everything that we've seen, especially in the recent past, um, those scenes of the protesters outside the mansion trying to break, like it really, it really hit home and it resonated. And, um, I, I really connected with the story in that respect in particular, far more than I, than I did as a kid reading this. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I always go back to the cartoon where they just very casually introduced 10 story tall robots who were hunting private citizens who had done nothing wrong. And that one of the antagonists was the friends of humanity who were completely non-powered, normal working class people who had joined a hate group (laughs) because someone they knew might've had superpowers. Um, But I think one of the things about the X-Men that's really interesting and puts it apart from, uh, from everyone else, certainly like the justice league or the Avengers is that people aren't wrong to be afraid. I mean, Jean Grey once ate a, eat the sun <laughs> like the the mut- mutants are incredibly dangerous and i think the mutant the uh, excuse me the movies do a very good job at saying yes we know that's why we opened a school not a training camp not a military facility but a school because we want to teach people that you know we can build a better world together and that they don't have to be afraid um i always tell people that one of the one of the interesting things that jack and stan did with the x-men back in the 60s when it was still just really a science fiction book and didn't have too much of the political allegory is most of the evil mutants were ugly and they were adults and they hadn't had a chance to go to school. You know, the blob, mastermind, the toad, like they are, they've been hated on for their entire life. And when a guy shows up who's flying in a red cape and says, we're going to get them, you, you join up. But Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, who were younger and who were prettier and could hide their mutation, they were still hated, but they had a chance. And when Cap asked them to join the Avengers, they do. And for the most part, they never look back. There's obviously 50 years of story in there. But, you, you know, it's this real idea of, like, that's why it's important that they have a school. And Gene even says in that arc, you know, you are here protesting, and I get that you're afraid, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be afraid, but I'd like to point out, this is a building full of children. <laughs> like, this is not, we're, 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 we're not an extremist camp, we're not terrorists, we're not any of the things you may have, you know, seen on Fox News. We're a school, and these are children. So, you know, please keep that in mind. Um, and that's one of the things I always love, because it's, you know, anyone in that school could have a very bad day and could turn out to be a supervillain. But if the X-Men do everything right, 
it's going to be year after year after year of, of competent super people who can go on to save the world or cure cancer or do whatever they want. But it separates them from everyone else in the fact that they are, you know, the Institute for Higher Learning. Speaking of the school, and, you know, we, we touched on this before, right, all of these new students, non-X-Men students who were introduced, uh, any, any favorite or favorites that you want to you shout out? You know, it's so funny. At the time, I was confused because I was like, why are you showing me all these background characters? Like, again, this is before Harry Potter. The movies had come out and everything else. Like, I was just like, well, who are all these characters? I don't really care. But reading it now um, with, with hindsight, knowing where many of these characters go, I love Beak. I absolutely love Beak, uh, so much so. Um, I love his introduction as basically an antagonist to the Beast, and I love seeing where his arc goes, uh, especially in, in the very last run where you get to see him in the future as basically a proper superhero. Um, and then the other characters I love are the Stepford Cuckoos. Uh, I did not understand them at all at the time. I, I didn't get them. I thought they might have been pre-existing characters from like Generation X. Uh, seeing where they go, seeing how their storyline develops, and seeing how Emma commits to them because she wants them not to make the same mistakes she did really lands with me because you get characters who immediately trust Emma while the other characters we already know are wondering, okay, what's the plot here? When does the Hellfire Club show up and kill us in our sleep? Yeah, I, uh, I'm with you on Beak. And I got to say, you know, it was heartbreaking when, uh, you know, Angel kisses him and he is just over the moon. I mean, literally they're in space and he's so happy. And, uh, and then we find out that the, you know, the Stepford Cuckoo's had, had bet her that, that she wouldn't. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but I'm curious, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where, uh, you know, where his story goes and the rest of it. But, you know, to your point, I, like, you said like at the time, you know, initially you didn't really, you know, you didn't get certain characters, right? And now you appreciate them more. I think that's one of the things about Morrison that I've really come to admire and value, especially in recent years where, you know, he's, they are not the easiest writer, you know, in, in a lot, even, even through that superhero lens. And I mean, I've not, I've not even read the, you know, their, their Doom Patrol or Invisibles or Animal, like any of that stuff. Doom Patrol, Anthony, you got to read Doom Patrol. I know. Well, maybe, maybe down the line. Uh, but even, even with their superhero stuff, uh, again, as we're talking about here, some of it can be a little tough to digest, but it, it lends itself to a reread. It lends itself really well to, um, you know, to revisiting at a different point in your life. And you can't say, I mean, I think you say that about a lot of comics because I've been doing, I've been experiencing that now with these podcasts, going back to stuff. But not every book falls into that category. But, you know, with Morrison stuff, it's like, yeah, especially when you're at a different point in, in, in your life, like you can find something different there. And that's the thing that I always admire. It's like, he's trying something. Like he's, they are going for something. And even if it doesn't always land or it doesn't always land with you immediately, there's there's thought behind it and there's a purpose and, and so I always, I, there's a lot of respect there, even if, you know, there are stories that don't necessarily work for me or don't work for me initially, but then I go back to. Yeah, I, I, I agree hundred percent. I always tell people that comics, especially since the, the period of time where you and I have been reading, they're expensive. <laughs> they really are. And, and you got to buy them on a regular basis and they come out every month, whether or not they're good. Um, but with, with the Morrison stuff, the reason that I, I support them as a writer and, and, and their peers, you know, we mentioned Mark Miller before, I'm a huge fan of his as well. Um, this stuff is almost always re-readable. And I don't know if it's, maybe it's coming from the UK, it's a different background. I don't know what it is, but there's much less disposability in their work. Um, 
I like the fact that I can reread this arc 20 years later and I'm still finding more stuff about it because I've never written a piece of fiction, but I'm almost certain that I could not do something that's going to stand up in 20 years. I just, you know, you change so rapidly. And the fact that they were able to do this, um, you know, that we're still talking about it, that I can talk about it for the rest of the night is, is amazing. Uh, one of the other things I'll say too is the 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 big ideas the more out there ideas the more esoteric stuff you know they they famously said in interviews that they never put anything in there that you can't quickly find out about by looking it up yourself so i know a lot of people say listen i just i want to read my comics and i want to forget about the world and i want to move on to the next thing and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but i read a lot of comics and a lot of them are terrible <laughs> and uh i like the fact that i'll get through an issue of this and suddenly i have to look something up and maybe it's annoying because maybe i needed more context in the story but 99 times out of 100, when I've had to look up something that they've referenced, it's something that I'm interested in, and it's something that I keep reading about. So I know it's not for everyone. I would never tell everyone they needed to read The Invisibles or anything like that, but I get a lot out of it, and I know a lot of people who do too. So I, I think there's something there, you know? Yeah, I, it, that makes total sense, and... You know, again, like some of the feedback that we got, you know, some of the folks who said, like, I don't, you know, I don't get Morrison or, you know, this was so divorced from the X-Men comics that came before. And I think someone even said that they prefer, you know, the more straightforward superhero stories. Right. And again, like, that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is entertainment and you should read and watch whatever you enjoy and, what, you know, based on whatever you're trying to get out of this experience. Right. So, so it's fine, but no, I'm, I'm with you. I think, and, and yeah, there's a reason why like we're talking about this and why we're doing it over two episodes. Right. As, as opposed to some other things that maybe we wouldn't even cover at all. Or if we did, it would be a quick the thing. arc right before you didn't call me up and say, Mike, I want to discuss Eve of Destruction and the 12. I mean, and I've read both of those comics and they have great art by Alan Davis, but you didn't ask about those. And why would you like they were written at the time they were for the time they came out in and everyone moved on. This came out the next month. It's 20 years later. We're still talking about it. Some work stands the test of time because it's written that way. Others by accident and still more. It's like, well, it was due and that's it and that's fine i bought those too you know as much as uh, you know i'm the host and I, i've been guiding our conversation i mean you were by far the expert on this run i mean that, like i said in a lot of ways this was very outside my wheelhouse I mean, where do you want to go next with our discussion of it i i think the most important thing to discuss about this run is the fact that you know the big bad of of this whole run not just the stories we read is is cassandra nova and she is an incredibly complicated character. Um, you know, for those of you who at home who are listening to this, Bate, the one sentence pitch for her is she's she's Professor X's twin sister that he did not know about. She was she did not make it out of the womb, and she became a being of pure astral energy, and she showed up at his weakest moment to to commit the genocide in Genosha. But one of the things I like about it is that she is the impetus for most of what happens in the story. It's she who decides to have him come out to the world and push all of this other stuff um, into the forefront. She's also the one who says, oh, hey, wait a second. Your ex-wife, one of your ex-wives, happens to be the empress of the largest uh, empire in the Milky Way galaxy. So I I'm going to go have some fun with that. Um, and I, I like when Morrison does this, where they introduce a big bad that just effortlessly deconstructs the team. 
because then they have to react to that and then the run moves very, very quickly. So I, I love that. I love the use of Cassandra Nova. I love the fact that she comes back in a very, uh, I'll just say unique way in the second half because uh, it's not something I need to spoil, but I do like that. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. But uh, I, I just love the idea of the, the dark version of Professor X, who is the, the originator of everything X-Men related, having this version of him that basically shows up and says, well, listen, Chuck, you haven't done enough. I'm going to push you to that other side. I'm going to make it so that you have to make all the decisions you're always too afraid of. And I, I think that's great because I think the, the antagonist moves the entire, not just the story, but the entire franchise forward. And I very much hope that when Marvel starts bringing the uh, X-Men back into films that she, she is one of the villains because she hasn't been used up until now. And I think people are ready for her. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, has she been adapted in, in any X-Men, like, cartoon or movie? I mean, I know not the movies because I've seen them, but not in, like, nowhere else, right? Uh, no, no. Unfortunately, the X-Men got uh, short-changed when, uh, when Disney bought Marvel. They, they had a cartoon on the air called Wolverine and the X-Men, and that was canceled. And to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been an X-Men cartoon since then, owing mostly to the fact that they were owned by a competitor. Um, but, yeah, I, I really... She has never shown up in anything, as far as I know. Um, there's an X-Men anime out there I haven't seen. But uh, uh, no, she, she's a very complicated character. And she's one of those characters, along with uh, John Sublime, who's another enemy in this arc, that a lot of I get into arguments with a lot of people because they're like, those are dumb characters. And I say, no, they're characters you don't like. They're not dumb. And let me tell you why. <laughs> and then I never talk to that person again. But uh, basically <laughs> what I'm saying is, you know, my, my favorite X-Men was always Magneto. I like the antagonists. I think the villains are the most interesting part of the story. And Morrison does a very good job at giving the X-Men new people to fight because even if they win, something about them is still changed. I think, I think there's a lot of potential for, uh, for, for Nova on screen. And given that, you know, uh, Disney now has control. Feige's a smart guy. I feel like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll I, I feel like we would see that character sooner rather than later, especially given the fact that we've already had, you know, big screen versions of a lot of the other characters within the X-Men world. Like this is some, this is a villain who is, you know, uh, tremendously effective and also new to movie viewers. So yeah, I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk again, that first arc, it's like, it just, it just grabs you and like, and doesn't let go. And she gets such an awesome introduction. I mean, you know, kind of laying out her, her philosophy to Trask's uh, right nephew, dentist, dentist, nephew, something like the, that. Yeah. The, the like last that. living Trask, a, a criminally benign human being. Right. Uh, and then, you know, this whole idea of the sentinel uh, master mold and the ability to create sentinels that can adapt to their environment like that instantly ups, uh, you know, that threat. Uh, and of course, that's what, you know, uh, you know, they destroy uh, Genosha. Uh, I have to say one of my favorite issues was and this was a gimmick at the time when Marvel did their Nuff Said month. Right. Where every every issue was silent and there was no dialogue or, or narration. It was all just art driven. And, you know, it's I've not read all of them, but the ones that I read really were very cool and interesting. And I, I love the one here and I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm glad Quietly was available for that one. <laughs> I'm glad I, Quietly was around for that one. I, I am of the mind that uh, if 
everyone, and I'm looking at you here, DC, if everyone wants to release Frank Quietly's books with no captions and no dialogue, I will buy them again. Because that man is a master draftsman. That, that man is on Kirby's level. His art tells you a story. Uh, I go back to All-Star Superman. There's an issue where Clark goes to um, uh, interview Lex in prison and the Paris, he, he quote unquote fights the parasite you don't need dialogue like quietly walks you through that entire story and, and it's beautiful so yeah to your point of of the nuff set issue here where there's no dialogue other than than you know one panel at the end of the book it's it's sublime and and honestly it's and that was not a pun um it's one of those things where you know it's like very famously, DC did a crossover where they introduced a host of new characters, and the only one that stuck around was the character Hitman by Garth Ennis and John McRae. Here, it's the same thing. Every book Marvel published that month uh, did enough said book. This is the only one that I have read since that month. And I'm not saying the others are bad, but they're not as memorable as this. Um, and yeah, I, I, it was one of those things where it's like, every once in a while, actually, more recently... Um, the current showrunner, for lack of a better term, of the X-Men line, Jonathan Hickman, actually did an homage to that. Uh, it was an expanded version of that story where Gene uh, and Emma once again have to go through through a similar odyssey, for lack of a better term. It wasn't as good, obviously, but the fact that they're still referencing that story so many years later, at the time it was considered a gimmick, I think speaks to the, to how how well it landed by those two creators. Yeah, it was so strong. I mean, for anyone who hasn't read it or hasn't read it recently, I really do recommend it. I, I don't have the issue number offhand, but uh, yeah, it's a silent issue drawn by Quietly. Uh, Emma and Jean uh, go into uh, Xavier's mind, trapped in the body of, of Cassandra Nova uh, to try to, to, to bring him back. And that's where we get the, the critical piece of information, right? That uh, Xavier tried to kill her in the womb. And that's the last bit of, di that's the one bit of dialogue that we do get at, at the end of yeah. the issue. But it's just like, you know, it was, it was such a cool issue. Uh, definitely a, a highlight for me from the first half that we read. Yeah. And I remember at the time people saying, oh, that's ridiculous. That's nonsense. But I, I think it's important for people to remember that, you know, Professor Xavier is a jerk, to quote Kitty Pride. Like, he, he is willing to make many compromises to make things work. Um, and, and, and I like in this story that even though he wasn't conscious of it, he didn't know he killed his twin or, or whatever nonsense, it's still this idea that, like, Professor X did something that came back to harm a bunch of other people later on. And I, I feel like that's very consistent with the character. It's like he makes a move trying to protect people and other people end up getting hurt later on. Uh, I think that's that's really great. Um, but one of the things I like about that issue is it exemplifies the way they they beat Cassandra Nova later on. Uh, G, I think it's Gene, it might be Beast, says to, to Cassandra, you don't understand teamwork. You don't understand family or connectivity or any of these things. And to me, that, that is the perfect way to defeat that character because that is what the X-Men are. They rely on each other. They're not even the Avengers. They aren't just work friends. Like, again, they're, they're students. They're classmates. Beast keeps saying, listen, Scott, I'm your best friend. I, I want you to be happy, and I want Gene to be happy. Like, I don't care about everything else. Like, don't Please don't mess this up. Um, and I like the fact that it takes both Gene and Emma, who that's probably the first time they ever – work together on anything before go in to help professor X because even though they don't agree with everything he does and, and, and Charles and Jean have a downright creepy uh, silver age story. Um, 
they both want him to be okay, and they're able to work together to accomplish that. And that's why Nova won't win. She can kill people all she wants, but at the end of the day, the X-Men are going to survive into a host of alternate futures. Yeah, I love that too. That was a great, uh, you know, a great payoff to all of that. Because you know, for for many of those those the first chunk of of issues here, it's like you know, Cassandra Nova's like thought of everything. She's you know many steps ahead. You know, the fact that she doused them with these uh, you know sentinel nanites and made them all sick, yeah, yeah. and it's, you know, uh, and to switch bodies with Xavier and all of that. It's like you know she seems you know near impossible to stop. And and the idea that yeah, it's ultimately going to be the the, the connections and the teamwork. You know, that's what the X Men's all about. So that was really cool to see that see that play out the way it did. Well, one thing I did want to talk about since we're jumping around, which by the way, is a very Morrisonian way of looking at art is jumping around <laughs> randomly. Yeah. Um, one of the issues that I, I didn't remember as well as I thought um, was the issue that takes place in Mutant Town that features just Zorn, and it deals with the seven-foot-tall 12-year-old. Now, for those of you who don't know, that was by an artist named John Paul Leon, who unfortunately passed away uh, either this week or last week. Uh, so reading that right after I got in the news was particularly... Um, uh, heartfelt, I guess, for lack of a better term. But that is an amazing story because, and this is why I asked about the spoiler tag, for those of you at home who don't know, Zorn is Magneto. I mean, that is the big reveal of this run. That is the most polarizing element of this run is, you know, they, Graham Morrison always intended for the character of Zorn, which is why he wears a mask the entire run, to be, you know, Eric Lencher, the master of magnetism, the, the X-Men's arch foe. So that issue I particularly liked because it's about a mutant who doesn't know any better being hunted by people because he's causing damage, but he doesn't realize he's causing damage. He's a 12 year old. He just happens to be in this giant and vulnerable body. And unfortunately he doesn't make it through the story, but it's, it's a testament to that story where you can watch it or read it rather from Zorn's point of view about him wanting to help people and save this mutant and save this family. But reading it now, 20 years later, knowing that's Magneto, I expected him to just burn down the entire city because that's what he does. It's like, you dared to hurt one of my people. I'm going to make you all pay. Um, so the fact that Morrison was able to make it consistent and make him bury that down so that he could still have his master plan, I thought was beautiful. And that, that really landed for me because I thought, you know, John Paul's artwork was amazing. He did a book called Earth X around the same time. I've always been a fan of his. And the one, uh, he also does the issue of, um, excuse me, the story a few issues later, the the funeral for, for Dark Star. I, I thought his artwork was perfect. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, would it have been good that one artist stayed on? Sure, but fill-ins are a way of life. And I thought John Paul's issues were amazing. I'm with you and same thing, you know, he just passed, you know, so sadly and, uh, and I, I hadn't read the issue yet and I, I don't think I even remember that he, that he did any in this. So it was, uh, it definitely hit me, but it was a pleasant surprise, you know, to be able to, to revisit that where I love both of those issues. And all right. So as far as Zorn, this was what I wanted to ask you because, you know, I'm, I'm reading it and, and the, the issue in particular that you're referencing in Mutant Town, you know, it, it, in the beginning, it seems like it's being narrated by Zorn and it, and it is, but we find out that it's like a journal that he's writing, right? So, no, so again, I've not read the entire run, but I read about it. So I don't know a lot of the other details of how the run ends, but I do know about that reveal. So as I'm reading this first half of the run, I know where they're going with Zorn. Um, 
And so the fact that in that issue, it's like a journal that he's writing for Xavier. It's like, well, okay, that, that tracks, right? He has to maintain his cover. The question that I have, and I know I'm going to, I'll be able to answer this for myself when I get to the second half, but I, I got to know, you know, like, you know, for you having read the whole thing, when the reveal comes, is it explained in a way that really is satisfactory that you can look back and say like, oh, okay, this all lines up. This all makes sense. There's two ways to answer that. One is as a lifelong X-Men fan who watched Magneto go from this crazy person to a much more genial person who eventually runs the school under uh, Chris Claremont's run and um, who's a more cartoonish supervillain during the 90s. The reveal doesn't make any sense if that's the only stuff you've read. But if you actually read this run again, knowing that it's Magneto, I do think it makes sense because like I said earlier, you know, Morrison does not have the nostalgia and the, the deep entrenched fandom for the X-Men that I'll use myself as an example that I did at the time. Um, and the reason, the reason I liked it is because there have been so many Magneto stories told and it would have been very easy to just say, well, we're not going to rely on Magneto. You know, Sir Ian McKellen is doing a great job in film. Let's, let's leave that alone. And Morrison said, no, listen, I may never write these characters again. I, just like he does in Batman with the Joker. It's like, I want to make sure that I tell a great version of these iconic characters. Um, it, it lands for me for two reasons. One, I buy the fact that Magneto is so arrogant and he's such your traditional Machiavellian supervillain that he thinks he could become a teacher at the school uh, to get the special ed class, no less, and think to himself, there's no way that I'm going to be won over by the innate goodness of the Xavier Institute. It's absolutely not. I'm a Holocaust survivor. I've suffered more than anyone's ever going to know. And then the second thing is there was actually an issue of Ultimate X-Men written by Mark Miller um, that has a similar plot line. So for those of you who've never read this, Ultimate X-Men number 20, I forget the name of the story, but is it done in one story? Uh, spoilers for that issue. It features a similar story to the Big Zorn reveal where uh, Magneto has had his mind wiped and he, in a, in a completely normal civilian life, becomes a devotee of Xavier's message. And it ends with Xavier meeting Magnus and him telling him like, oh man, listen, I'm really happy I got a chance to meet you because I just wanted to say what a big influence you've been on my life. And Charles is vindicated because he realizes I connected with my old friend. I just had to get the malice and hate out of his body. Um, so I think the Zorn reveal makes sense because I think that at the end of the day, Magneto always thinks that he is going to be right and he'll do whatever he needs to, to get to that. But I, I also want to point out for those people who stopped reading when it was revealed that Magne that Zorn was Magneto is that Magneto doesn't accomplish anything that he wants to. Like, if you read the rest of that arc, it's, it's called Planet X, Eric fails, and he fails quite spectacularly. So I always remind people of that, of like, yeah, he pretended to be Zorn, but he didn't win. And, and, and not only does he not win, he causes all this damage that's immediately brushed under the rug by the next writer. So I think that's an important caveat to the, to the reveal. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't end with the reveal. He doesn't stand triumphant over the hero and just move on to the next thing. Gotcha. No, I appreciate the feedback. And yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to get to that and to see how it all connects within the context of the story. Uh, you know, that annual, that 2001 annual uh, drawn by Lineal Yu, love his art. Um, I'm, I'm on record, you know, Birthright, one of my, one of my favorite stories. Um, it was interesting. I had forgotten, uh, you know, again, going back to, I guess, like gimmicks of the time, I, that it was uh, widescreen format. 
Mar- Marvel Vision, yeah. Yeah, what I got to say, so I wa- I read, I watched, I read on my iPad on the on the, on the Marvel app, and it was great on the iPad. It really, it, it worked wonderfully. Uh, there's a lot going on in it, but I got to there's one part that I, my favorite line in that annual, and I, I don't know why it, it, it tickled me so the way it did, but when uh, Zorn is, has had enough and he's going to kill himself, and Scott's talking him down, and Beast goes, Scott's very good with the depressed. <laughs> I loved it. And my favorite line of the annual. Yeah, I, I, I love that because Scott, Scott Summers is a very uninteresting person. You know, he just really is. And every once in a while, he gets to talk to someone else who's had uh, not, not a great go of it in life. And he gets to talk them off the edge because it's just like, Guy, I, I can't even take these things off. I don't even know what my kids look like. Like, I just, believe me, we're going to be okay. Um, that's not the line I thought you were going to say. My favorite line in that uh, annual is when Wolverine is talking to Domino, and uh, he, I guess he is smelling her, and he just goes, oh, what are you uh, doing after this mission? And they're fighting, like, you know, Chinese cyborg killer robots or whatever. And she goes, yeah, you just can't just hide the uh, the excitement of a battle. And then it's, you know, presume they're going to go off and have relations afterwards. But I remember it being so casual at the time because they really didn't do that in the X-Men books. You know, Domino was this X-Force character, and it was just this very, like, you know, uh, sophomoric like joke like something you'd see in a, in a, in a teen movie but I, I just always look back to that where I was like yeah why not they're consenting adults they're both used to, to murder rampages so that's the one I always go back to yeah no that's a great that stood out to me as well uh, yeah it didn't take the top spot uh, Scott is very good with the depressed that's uh, that's that's my favorite line but do you, you know, know what yeah. Cyclops was doing before this run starts because it's a pretty big deal it's referenced a bunch of times during the arc well that he had been uh, controlled by apocalypse right was that the yeah yeah so there was this huge build-up to the to the 2000 to the the millennium changeover whatever it was and it ends with scott sacrificing himself to take apocalypse off the board and they i don't know they go off and they do something but the, the whole idea is that he and apocalypse are the same entity for a little while and the original intent was that when he comes back, he's, he's not the same guy. So this is a guy who's, you know, basically gone through an incredibly traumatic experience and he's still processing it. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I was able to, and I mean, I could have done some Wikipedia research, but I felt like the, I mean, the run gave me enough context that I was able to, uh, you know, to kind of piece that together. Yeah. I mean, through this, you know, it's funny cause I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't have that strong an opinion on, Scott, but I, I do like the idea of, I mean, yes, literally he has all of this energy that he has to keep inside, but the fact that there's, there's so much emotion, anger, what, you know, whatever it is that, that he keeps bottled up as well. Uh, you know, I thought was interesting. I want, this is separate, but I wanted to, I wanted to get your take on this as well. Cause we haven't talked about this yet. Uh, the fact that this run took the characters out of their traditional costumes and oh yeah right and put them in in leather very much akin to what we had just seen a year or two earlier in the movie uh and then of course i mean i guess they would stay in that right until until they have to astonish them again and right and they, they put their costumes <laughs> back on uh but what was your i mean how did you feel at the time i guess about the the lack of costumes 
it, it didn't bother me for two reasons. One, the, the X-Men have always changed their costumes. Like, uh, that was the thing that, like, people were very annoyed at the time. And I was like, yeah, but those costumes you're used to from the cartoon, they were they only came out in, you know, 91, 92 when Jim Lee redesigned them. And I, I love them. But it's like the, the X-Men are constantly changing. And the other thing that, you know, occurred to me is Scott even says it, that these are school uniforms. Like the, the X-Men have always worn this yellow and blue, uh, uh unitard or, or something else like that. Like they have school uniforms. So the idea that they're going to open up their school to other people and they want to have a consistent look to themselves just made sense to me. Cause again, it seemed like an evolution of, of the brand. Um, I, I, I will say though that when Astonishing X-Men came out and they had that very famous scene of, well, you know, we have to wear costumes because superheroes wear costumes. That That's one of the things I was talking about before where it's like, you know, people were tripping over themselves to undo this run once it was over because, you know, Scott says like, I don't understand why you wanted us to be superheroes and, and or, or rather someone else says that. And then Scott says, well, you know, Professor X thought it would be, uh, more familiar. Like if, if people thought we were the Fantastic Four or the Avengers, they might trust us a little bit more. They might not try to murder us. Um, but I like that here. It's just like, no, you know what? We belong to a school. We're going to wear our logos. I don't quite know why Logan doesn't wear a shirt. That part I never got. Um, but, you know, uh, having having seen the Wolverine, I, I, I get it now as an adult. Um, so no, it, it never bothered me. I, I, I think of the X-Men as characters who have a litany of different costumes drawn by some of the greatest artists to ever live. So I, I don't know. It never fazed me. It's funny because I, I, I haven't been keeping a tally, but from, from <laughs> you've mentioned this numerous times about how you've had to defend this run. And again, it's like, I was, I was very much out of the loop for most of this. Like I said, I read the beginning of it and that was it. And you know, I knew about the Zorn thing, but I mean, that was about it. But so, I mean, I, you know, it, yeah, it seems like you've really had to fight. You've had to, <laughs> to fight on behalf of, uh, of this work. I mean, you know, listen, <laughs> there's one thing about comic book fans that unites all of them no matter what, and it's that they like arguing. That That's it. That's the only thing that unites everyone. You know, we'll argue with, any, with anyone about anything. And the Morrison run is very divisive because it takes everything that you had grown accustomed to, and that Marvel said you should grow accustomed to, and it changes it. And it does it in a very violent, very aggressive way because Morrison, I think, wanted to bring in new readers. He wasn't, they weren't interested in just having me and, you know, the other guys at AR read this thing. Like they wanted to get everyone to read this and to talk about, you know, change and evolution and, and the future world we were building for ourselves. Again, before 9-11. 9-11 happens during this run, but all of this stuff is right before. Um, and it just, it didn't, it didn't land. I mean, I mean, the biggest thing that I'll say is that, you know, Morrison doesn't work at Marvel once this run wraps up. You know, they go back to DC and they have celebrated runs at DC. I've read all of it. Most of it is very, very good. And Marvel, for whatever reason, they just... I don't know. They just, maybe they weren't ready for this. So I, I think a lot of it is just people reading other books and saying, well, these changes that you're so fond of, they didn't land, you know, they didn't stick around. And I would say that's true. But now 20 years later, I would point to the fact that people who are our age and who read those at the time and are now making these books, they're fans of the Morrison run. So yeah, maybe at the time, you know, Joe Casey and, and Chuck Austin and, and Chris Claremont and the other ones, uh, you know, didn't quite know how to uh, facilitate the changes. 
it stuck around, you know, Morrison is more Kubrick than Spielberg. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's, it's fascinating to, you know, hear you talk about that because again, it's like, I don't, I don't have any attachment to, to really any iteration of the X-Men to be honest. So it's like, I don't have a horse in this race. I just want a good story. And I feel so far halfway through the run, I've, I've gotten that, but you know, I've definitely you know, been in situations with other characters where, you know, maybe there've been changes I haven't liked, or maybe there have been interpretations of certain DC characters that I've loved that other people have been very much opposed to. And, you know, so it's like, I, you know, I, I, I do get it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think all of those things you said, I mean, may, maybe in a, in a post nine 11 world, maybe this wasn't what people were necessarily looking for. Maybe it really was just ahead of its time. Maybe. Do you think there's any aspect of the hardcore fans feeling like, especially with the lack of costumes and, and maybe some of the, the, the themes that were explored that it was seen as too much of an attempt to try to like mimic the movies. Do you think, was that something at the time that fans were, were kind of feeling there? Do you, did you get that sense? I, I, I didn't get that sense at the time only because, you know, the first movie came out and the first movie, you know, costumes aside is very much an X-Men story. <laughs> like they fight the brotherhood of mutants and Senator Kelly is there. And, right. um, you know, it, it does check a lot of the boxes. I think, I think what happened was, you know, if you if you describe the X-Men to someone, you know, it's like it's it's people who when they hit puberty, they're going to get superpowers. But unlike and I'm not picking on them, but unlike the Justice League, they're not always good powers. You know, Rogue can't touch anyone else. Scott can't look at anyone else like they're 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 your classic uh, 50s science fiction EC comics. They come with a downside horror story. Um, so I think Morrison looked at that and said, well, wait a second. Why are we? stopping with that why are all the characters beautiful superheroes with the occasional acknowledgement that something is wrong with them why aren't we pushing that to its natural level of saying you know what everyone's messed up and the story is how you overcome that um to go back to the john paul leon story about mutant town beast or no excuse me beast or zorn i don't remember which one but one of them actually says that if you had given the, the character's not given a name but if you're given if you had given the seven foot tall 12 year old 10 more days they would have become something else and, and i think that is a big theme about this run it is it's evolution you know the the sentinels at the beginning are the evolved form of the classic kirby sentinel you know kirby drew giant purple robots that's awesome that makes a lot of sense those same creatures became Nimrod. Those same creatures now became the chicken sentinels, the nano sentinels, the mega sentinels. Like it's the same idea, but it's evolved. And I, I feel like that is a theme that runs through the work. Um, the very last issue, I think it's issue 134, you see a young mutant who's drawn beautiful and they're cool and they're the big man on campus. Mm -hmm. And then Quentin Quire, Kid Omega, the, the next big bad in this arc, reveals that no, they're a tiny web-footed creature who were using their ability to get well-liked. And that, as an adult, that just lands with me because it's like, oh my goodness, yeah, are you kidding me? If you had superpowers and you were a teenager, that is absolutely what you would do. That's what you would do as an adult. So I, I think a lot of those themes didn't land at the time because they're not things you want to read in your superhero book. You know, you want to read about beautiful people saving the world and doing amazing things. And uh, the Morrison runs not about that. You know, from Ugly John through Beak, through Angel, through everything else that happens later, it's about change and how difficult change is when you're going through it. Well said. Uh, you know, the other thing you touched on this before, I guess this was something else, another character you defended, but, but John Sublime and the U-Men and all of that, that 
I, I dug it. I thought it was interesting because it was another, you know, it was another angle and it was another, you know, it wasn't humans who hated mutants and wanted to eradicate them. It was humans who wanted to be mutants, but the way that they became mutants was by killing mutants and harvesting their organs. But I thought it was, I thought it was, a, a, you know, it was an interesting aspect to this um, that I guess is introduced right in the annual. And then we have the germ-free generation arc. Right where they uh, the humanists like launch their assault on the mansion. Yeah, I I really like that storyline because uh, again, you know, you mentioned before how the protests maybe didn't land at the time because they seemed too outlandish, but certainly now they make a, a bit more sense. You know, literally during that arc, Jean Grey calls, I, I don't know, the Salem Center Police, the yeah. Westchester Sheriff's Department, whomever she would call, and they say, well, yeah, you know what? You deal with that. And then armed guards, the U-Men, a well-funded private army with high-tech weaponry, attack a school with a bunch of kids that they want to murder and bring them down. And, and you know, there's a saying where it's like, you know, to have the protection of the law, you have to follow the law. And the people at this school, the X-Men and their students have now been told that the law is not going to protect you. Well, what other course do they have other than to attack them? And that's when you begin to see Jean become the Phoenix, which again is kind of a shout out to long-term fans because you know that there's no greater antagonist for the X-Men than the Phoenix entity. So it, it's kind of scary too, because she's like, she's going to stop the U-Men. Of course she's going to stop the U-Men, but she might also, you know, destroy the moon, <laughs> which which is uh, uh, brought in later on when the Shi'ar show up. But one of the things I really like about John Sublime is um, – where his character goes. So, so here he's kind of just a straw man, you know, he's a little weird, but of all the characters we've been introduced to so far, his is the arc that takes the most 90 degree turn in the second half. So I'm going to just leave it until then. Cause it's, it's so weird and it's so esoteric. I say, let's just table it for the next time because none of the really weird plot elements for that character have even been hinted at. So let's, let's just table that for now. Okay. Fair enough. That works for me. The other thing, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but was the idea that uh, Logan wasn't weapon X, but was rather weapon 10. That was a new idea for this, right? Or had that been done before? No, that was brand new. And in fact, I was going to mention that next because that when Phantom X tells professor X that, Oh, it's, it's, it's not Weapon X, it's Weapon 10. And by the way, there's been an entire program with that that includes Captain America and Nuke and all these characters in the Marvel Universe that she thought had nothing to do with each other. I, I just remember thinking like, oh, okay, I liked Weapon X, I liked all that stuff, but I love this and I want to see more of that and please give me a Weapon Plus ongoing. Uh, no, that, that was introduced right there and it was so elegantly well done that it's it's stuck around i mean there was a weapon plus book i think last year and and um jason aaron did a great weapon plus annual where he had phantom x team up with another Graham morrison creation the marvel boy novar so it's one of those things where like that stuck around you know a bunch of this other stuff people didn't quite catch on but the idea of like oh no you know weapon x that thing that made wolverine into a human killing or a mutant killing machine is uh, a far larger and far more dangerous and far more well-resourced than you thought. That was all Morrison. And I love that they just drop it on you in the middle of this arc. Yeah, it was good. That's something that I, 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 I think I remember us talking about at the shop at the time. And uh, yeah, I thought that was such a cool idea because it's like, 
Yeah, of course you would just assume it was an X, right? But I, I, like it's and it's yeah, and that's you know Morrison's brilliance, I think, where it's like it's right there, like it's right, you know, it's right there. So you know, but it's you know, it hadn't been done before, uh, and that's what I thought was the case. But I just wanted to confirm. Right. Yeah, I thought that. Well, you was, know, think was of cool. it from their point of view, because it's like if you're not an X Men fan and you read Weapon X, you're like, why? What the hell is it called Weapon X for? He hasn't even met <laughs> Professor X yet. It's right. like hey, it could be Weapon Ten for all you know. Um, and I don't know if you know this. Have you ever read the the Barry Windsor Smith? story weapon x that introduces all this this mythology yeah i might have read it once like years and years ago and i don't remember it, it well. doesn't matter my only point is that they don't ever use the term weapon x to refer to an organization or anything like that it's more thematic it's more like you know logan's identity has been taken off the table so he is just weapon x he's weapon unknown and it was so popular that it, it really built up and built up and other writers added to it. But Morrison was the first person to say, okay, wait a second. I agree. I really like this. The fact that the military industrial complex would use people that come pre-programmed with superpowers to do terrible things makes a lot of sense, but you know, it has good and bad, you know, it, it starts with Captain America. It starts with them saying, Hey, we have to defeat the Axis powers. Uh, but the guy who came up with the super soldier serum was unfortunately killed what else do you have? And it's like, well, we're the Marvel universe. We have Eternals and Inhumans and Immortals and all these other characters. Why don't you play around with them for a while? Yeah. Yeah. It was just so clever. It just opens up the world, uh, you know, in, in a really cool way. So I dug that a lot. Um, yeah. And I, the character Phantom X was cool. Again, that was the Igor Cordy, like his full arc that he <laughs> did all the ones. It was a, it was a little tough. Uh, we, we haven't talked a ton about, uh, Again, how how Nova uh, infiltr or takes over the, the Shi'ar Empire and directs them at, at the mansion and all. I don't. I guess I don't have a ton to say about that. What what if anything do you want to say about uh, that arc and that development? One of the things I like about the the Shi'ar, um, who unlike the the Kree and the Skrulls, you know, they don't deal with too many other aspects of the Marvel universe. <laughs> Excuse me, they're mostly an X Men thing. Um, some one of the characters actually says, you know, that they were very proud that it were mutants that made contact with one of the first uh, civilized interstellar empires, the um, Shi'ar, and that it was this idea of like, well, the Shi'ar don't want to destroy us the way the Skrulls or the Kree or someone else do. They're just kind of like, oh, hey, you guys discovered space travel and now you have genetic anomalies. Congratulations, you know, welcome to the larger community. And then, you know, after dealing with the X-Men for so long during the Dark Phoenix saga and everything else, Cassandra Nova is the first thing to make them go, oh, man, we should not have come to this planet. You guys, you guys are rough. And I love that because I love the idea that they would just write us off and be like, no, I don't know what the heck that thing was, but it did way more damage than we thought. We have to go back home. We have to deal with this. You, you, you guys are on your own. Just just have fun. We don't know why that redheaded woman's on fire. Just just deal with this stuff. We'll come back. We'll come back if you're still here in a generation. <laughs> yeah. I You know, I have to say, like, that arc, that was a you know, we talk about accessibility. That one was a little tough for me, not having any any connection to or, or knowledge of any of those characters. Again, the story gave me enough and I was able to follow it certainly, but I wasn't, in terms of like my, my level of investment, it was it was kind of low, uh, you know, with, with that arc. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. And again, it leads to, you know, what we talked about before with, you know, teamwork finally being, uh, you know, how they're able to overcome and, and save the day. So I thought that was cool. Uh, what else within this first half of the run uh, did you want to touch on that we haven't gotten to? 
I, I just want to go back to Phantom X because I love that character. I really do. I, I love that he's uh, witty and clever and creative. I love that he lies to all the characters. Um, I love that he's French for no reason other than the character he's based off Fantomas is French and the fact that he thought it sounded cool. I, I love the arbitrary arbitrary nature of the character because I think it's Morrison's commentary on superheroes. Um, I always say that Phantom X is Gambit done right. I, I don't like the character of Gambit. I don't think he's all that interesting. I, I don't like his head sock. I, I just, I never found the character to be all that interesting. Um, but I, I like Phantom X because he's got a lot of the same overlap. He's a thief. He wears a long coat. He's got random French words thrown in. But he's also, you know, got this whole life outside of his dealing with the X-Men. And I always thought, like, oh, that's a rogue I can get behind. Um, the other thing I like about Phantom X is that he stuck around. You know, he was in the books for much longer than many of the other characters. And he, I, in fact, I think he still might be in the books today, uh, which always made me very happy. He actually even had his own series for a while under the Max line. So I just, I, I love him. I, I, I think it's great that no one can tell if he's telling the truth or not. I love the fact that he can play the X-Men like a fiddle. And uh, I love the fact that he randomly has a flying saucer because, you know, why not? Why, why shouldn't he? Who cares? Uh, I just think it's all great. Yeah. Yeah, he was a cool addition. Um, uh, and I was not aware of his legacy beyond this run. So, uh, yeah, it's funny. You mentioned a number of things that I might check out at some point. Uh, you know, once once I get done with the the rest of the Morrison run for our next conversation, um, which, so speaking of that, so we'll, we'll be back, you know, in two weeks and, uh, now I scouted ahead and I saw that in the, the second half of the Morrison run, it's, I believe five arcs. If, if, if I'm correct for it, right. It's like a handful of arcs. And the sense that I got just from like looking at the covers on the Marvel app, it, uh, the arcs seem more clearly defined than the first half of the run, which, um, I felt it was like, it was a little more fluid. I mean, I, you know, obviously there are certain lines of demarcation there, but looking ahead, it looks like we have like a handful of very clearly defined arcs and, um, again, artistic consistency within each arc. Um, so, I, so I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see the Zorn reveal and, and, uh, and, and again, see how it all connects and how it's explained. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes and, and how it wraps up. Um, anything else that you want to say about the first half before we, before we sign off? Uh, the only thing I would say is, you know, you're talking about the, the consistency in the second half. Uh, you have to remember that this was back when trades started to become a big deal. You know, the, that was really big with the, the Ultimates stuff, the Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate X-Men. Every six issues, you, you got a trade paperback, and it was affordable, and it was right there on the shelves. And something similar happened with this run, because it became obvious that, you know, like Sandman or Daredevil or these other things, people who didn't go to the store every week like you and I wanted to read this. So trades needed to get together and get out. So I, I think as things became a bit more popular, you do get a bit more... Um, consistency. I, I think it's the last run on here, Here Comes Tomorrow, where you literally have Mark Silvestri work on the X-Men, which was a huge deal because though he had worked on the X-Men in, in the late 80s, he, you know, he, he went off and he found a top cow and he did all this stuff with Image. So to come back to Marvel and to do this book, like that was a huge deal. Like, that was probably um, Marvel's big event of that year. And then to know it was on new X-Men just should give people who are, you know, maybe a little unsure about the run, just an idea of how big it got, you know, even if it started from a weird place by the end, everyone was reading it, even if they weren't enjoying what they were reading. <laughs> gotcha. 
Uh, yeah, I, listen, I, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate all of your insight on, on this. I know I'm sure you could easily do another hour and a half on this. Uh, you know, I don't know if you how do, I mean, honestly, like, do you feel like we only just scratched the surface or are you satisfied, I guess, with the, with the level of depth that we, that we got here or somewhere in between? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I, 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 I think that every time you read a story by Grant Morrison, for the most part, you you can get something else out of it. I think for here, I really like talking about it with you because I like the fact that you liked it, even though you, you know, you don't have anything to compare it to. And I think that's great because I think that's the, that's the point of, of the run. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, whatever the heck Cassandra Nova is supposed to be is rooted in a whole bunch of philosophy stuff and, and all this other stuff. Like you can read this a different way depending on what you're interested in. But at the end of the day, it was meant and it was sold as a good superhero story. Um, you know, the only, the only other thing that really jumps out at me is there is, um, there is this, this like team dynamic that is built in this run that I, I don't think gets enough credit because you, you see it again with Astonishing X-Men. You see it with the movies where it's like, okay, wait a second. There are many, many, many characters for the X-Men and, and everyone is someone's favorite. But here we're going to focus on five of the big ones and we're going to focus on their relationships and we're pretty much not going to acknowledge anything else that happens in the other books. And that seems like it would be very easy to do, but you have to remember that at the time, everything was really interconnected and everything crossed over and you had to buy all the different books to get it. So the fact that editorial was even able to say to, to Graham Morrison, well, like, listen, you you, you're in charge. You're going to do whatever you want with this book. And we think sales are going to be very good. And they ultimately were. We're not really going to mess around with you. I mean, it's not, you know, at no point did you turn to me and say, oh, by the way, we should read the tie-in to the Joe Casey run or the Extreme X-Men run. It's like you didn't have to do that. You you got a story from one book. And I, I think that's a big reason as to why the book is um, still popular all these years later because you can give it to someone who doesn't know that they have to read all these other books. They can just read this one and they can get a, a good story out of it. Not just a cerebral story, not just a action adventure story, but a story about characters you actually want to know what happens next. And that like very basic premise, I feel like is something a lot of comics, even at the time, didn't have. You know, it's it's funny because I don't think... I didn't really think about that specifically, but I'm so glad you mentioned it because that is so true and so rare, you know, for superhero comics generally, and especially X-Men. That is a, such a great point. The fact that, and you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, had that not been the case, if reading this run required, you know, diving into, you know, all the other books that were going on at the time, I probably wouldn't have done this. So, yeah, I mean, as as podcaster, but also as, as reader and as X-Men novice, it's like, yeah, no, I really, it's true. I didn't really think about that, but I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, I mean, I really do appreciate the fact that this run stands on its own and uh, and that you don't need, and I mean, I guess the same thing's true, you know, for his Batman run. I mean, obviously it tied into Final Crisis, but that was his own story. So. That was his story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I am glad that he's given the, the leeway to do stuff like that. Um, and I do think, you know, for sure that lends itself to, uh, to his work, be, like we've been saying, right. Being, being their work, uh, being stuff that can, can be revisited and can stand the test of time because it, it, it can exist uh, in and of itself. Uh, there really is something to that. And the, the, the flip side of that is true because you, you know, you asked before, like, why do I have to constantly argue with people about this run? Which by the way, I, I enjoy, I very much enjoy I know. arguing with people. You've seen me <laughs> argue with everyone about everything. Um, 
So, you know, imagine you're the age we were. You're a teenager. You're working on a limited budget. You go in, you buy your X-Men books. There's this one book everyone is reading. It's a little weird, but, you know, it's still good. Um, and then you buy four other X-Men books that month. But none of them seem to have anything to do with each other. It's kind of understandable that you'd be a little annoyed. Like, I remember... Um, I don't know if we've gotten to it, but there is a story in one of the other X-Men books. So, so this was New X-Men. The other one going on at the time was Uncanny X-Men, and that had a, a few writers, one of which was famously a gentleman named Chuck Austin, which we do not need to get into here. But there's an issue that he wrote that featured Cassandra Nova, which does not make any sense if you just read the Morrison it, the Where the story leaves off and where it continues, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, which, again, is fine if you're just reading that book because you know it's a big bad, you know it's something they have to deal with and you have to move on. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, 20 years later, I'm still reading the Morrison run. I'm not going back to read all of that other stuff. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it, it was good at the time. You, you enjoyed it. There, there are some great bits and all that other stuff. But again, that was written by people who wanted to work at Marvel and wanted to tell that story and wanted to, you know, make sure you really enjoyed what they did. And I feel like Morrison was like, you know what, if I don't write the X-Men once I'm done with my story, I don't really care. And that ended up happening because they went back to DC and they wrote, you know, amazing stories that, that continue to this day. And I, I wish my, my dream, I don't know if I ever told you this, my dream project for Graham Morrison is very simple. I just want them to write Fantastic Four. That's it. I, I don't care if it's in its own continuity or it's in normal continuity, but if if I could get a Grant Morrison Fantastic Four ongoing for as long as they want to write the book, I would happily buy three copies an issue. That That is my dream. So, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with this. Well, seconded. That would be awesome. Uh, well, listen, thank you, Mike. I really do. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and again, there, there's no one else I would <laughs> want to go on this ride with. So thank you. Uh, and thank you to everyone who listened or watched. This was part one. Uh, we'll be back with part two in two weeks. And until then, remember, they're all imaginary stories. My Comic Shop Book Club is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Kristen San Gregorio. Music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to check out my other podcasts, Digging for Kryptonite and My Comic Shop History. Sign up for exclusive content, including the official book club companion podcast at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon.